It's great to have you here this morning. I just want to remind you, some of you um, have been asking questions about our uh, Date Your Mate outing. It's going to be at the end of this month. You can still sign up for that. There'll be folks out at the lobby can sign you up for that. Well, today is the seventh Sunday of Easter. Uh, We have been looking at what Easter means and what resurrection means in all of our lives, and we're sneaking up on the end of this, what's called Eastertide in the Christian calendar. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, and so We've been trying to understand and and step into what new life really means to us. And so today we're going to start with Acts 1. Uh, We get this reading today. This is part of the lectionary. Some of you uh, are familiar with what the lectionary is. It's this grouping of scriptures that have been put together that if you follow these um, scriptures over three years, you will have impacted and been impacted by the whole scriptural story. And so we don't follow this exactly, but we certainly lean into it and pay attention to it uh, in our times together because we want to be able to see the whole um, sense of the whole story. So Acts 1, 1 this morning. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began, began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit." So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Every week at communion, and we're going to do that again Again, today we say a very simple statement. We call it the mystery of our faith. Uh, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It really suggests that this is a new beginning. This, this idea of resurrection is, speaks of this mystery that life is now new. Things have changed completely uh, at the resurrection. Now, on a human level, all of us have experienced some things in life where we felt like the world changed. Uh, do you remember where you were? On September the 11th, 2001, how many of you remember where you were? Most everybody remembers exactly, right? We were actually with Ed and Gail in a car driving back from a weekend, and and we were listening to the radio, and all of a sudden they were talking about planes flying into into buildings, and we just were we were just stunned. We just sat there I, for four hours. I don't think we hardly said a word other than just kind of uh, praying under our breath and. The world certainly changed. I remember a time as a teenager, some of you might remember this, July the 20th, 1969, um, the first uh, time that man walked on the moon. Any of you remember that? My parents let us pull a mattress into the uh, 
um, into the living room and we watched it chronicled on television. Some of you go, 1969, you got to be kidding me. I know, some of you aren't, weren't even thought of by that time. Was that the time of the Civil War? Yeah, that's about that time. Um, I remember my second grade teacher walking into the room on November the 22nd, 1963, and said, our president has just been shot. And I remember the smell of the room. I remember what, what the bulletin board looked like. I remember what she was describing. I, wanted to, I remember wanting to be with my parents because it kind of scared me. Um, these kinds of things change the world. Now, my, my memory is a little fuzzy on this one. October the 12th, 1492. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember that one or not, but the whole Columbus thing, you know. And so on a human level, these were things that changed the world. And even though these were huge, they were huge events that brought about a change in the world, they were nothing like what happened with the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus was raised from the dead, all things were made new. In Acts, we see the Spirit of God sweeping over the disciples. And we see that a new day is beginning for all people. There's new life. There's new hope. There's forgiveness. There's power. And God is now inviting us to be a part of that same story and to participate in that. The trouble is everything didn't immediately seem new. Men still struggled and still, men struggled then and still struggle with themselves, with their relationships with other people. There's still sin and disease and war and hate and selfishness. And when we look at this particular scripture, the disciples were asking Jesus, is this time for your kingdom to come? And in their mind, they were thinking of a military overthrow, that Jesus' new kingdom was going to come in and they were going to get rid of their military oppressors and these superficial rulers of this world would be dethroned. Well, we know now that's not what Jesus was talking about. But if we're not careful, we can, as we read through and we read something about the kingdom of God, we can go to the other extreme and we can go, okay, well, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven must be in the future. And so that doesn't really have anything to do with us today. So we just kind of plan for the future and we don't worry about what's going on on this earth. But as you go further in here, it says the Holy Spirit has come upon us to give us power so that we can be witnesses to those around us and a little farther away and a little farther away and to the whole earth. You notice it says be witnesses. It doesn't really say do witnessing. That's kind of what we've turned it into in our modern church is this is about memorizing the four spiritual laws in a certain way. Now, nothing against that. We're certainly going to be times where we want to share our faith and our experience with the story. But I wonder if this is more about becoming more like him, being transformed. Somehow we become changed more into his likeness so that we can be his image bearers in the world, that something happens internally so that we be his witness. So I wonder if it's not more important, possibly, how we deal with the poor or how we interact with our enemies, our neighbors, or deal with our spouses or our children? Do we, do we pay our taxes on time? Do we treat our employees properly? Do we honor our employer and, and work as we're working into the Lord? It, might that be more important um, than having our little 
kind of spiel together on how we do witnessing. Now, when Jesus disappears, and you can only imagine um, what's going on here, the, you know, the disciples are communicating, just sharing with him. It says he was teaching, he was eating, and then all of a sudden he just kind of floats off in a cloud. I mean, that's just weird, you know. Um, that's just odd. This is the kind of thing has never happened before. And so um, the disciples must have been thinking, okay, we, we thought we understood what was going on. We, we walked with you. We served. We thought this idea of new kingdom coming. Okay, then all of a sudden you're killed. And aren't, why don't you jump off the cross? Come on. I mean, this is different than what we thought it was going to be. And then, okay, now you're buried. Now, but then you're resurrected. Okay, now this, okay, this is making sense again. And so now we're, we're um, talking with you and we're thinking, okay, now this is the time that everything is new, everything, the new kingdom is going to happen. And then all of a sudden he starts kind of floating up into the air. I mean, it's like, what's going on here? So instead of uh, this new utopia that they were hoping that was going to take place, it goes on in the scripture uh, following here in Acts. And it says simply, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. This is not exactly the dramatic new beginning I was anticipating. I wasn't anticipating just going into a room and praying. I think oftentimes even when we come to faith, it's like, okay, wow, this is amazing. Life is now new. It's going to be easy. It's, it's, it's all going to come together now. And it doesn't quite happen quite that magically, quite that instantly. We don't think that it's just about spending time and praying and trying to hear from what, he, what he's saying to us. Now, in the next several chapters in Acts, we're going to see the beginning of the church. It's truly an amazing thing that happens. Um, we're going to see the church come alive. But it's not this magical overnight change. As a matter of fact, it's full of messiness. It's full of struggle. It's full of difficulties. Um, but it's still new. About 25 or 30 years ago, Tulsa was going through a time where they were building a lot of new homes, and the builders really wanted those homes to look settled. So they would develop this neighborhood, and they would put a lot of trees in them that were very fast-growing trees so that the neighborhood would look settled immediately. Some of you guys may remember these trees. Um, We don't see them as much anymore. They're Bradford pears. And Bradford pears were great because you could plant them, and they would just instantly look big, and the neighborhood looked settled. The problem was, because they grew so fast, they were brittle, and they didn't have a lot of strength in them. So when a windstorm comes along, or when an ice storm comes along, they splinter and they fall apart. In the big ice storm that we had uh, several years ago, Brent and I looked out the window and just watched all of our Bradford pears just fall apart all over the yard. A tree has to take a long time to grow, a steady, slow growth, in order to be strong and in order to withstand some of the things that come against them. We want to suggest today that at the resurrection, all things were made new. When we come to faith, all things are made new. 
but there's still a growth process that has to occur in order for there to be strength and health and life. We tend to want quick growth so that we look good. But when we focus more on how we look instead of how we're growing, then we can easily fall apart. We can easily become splintered. God is in the process of growth. He wants us to have healthy growth. He wants us to have depth, roots, and strength. He doesn't want us to have the brittle brittle branches in our lives. You know, I think God uses analogies about plants a lot in Scripture, not just because the people at that particular time were more of an agricultural society, but I think when we look at something that, that talks about plants, we can all relate to that. You know, I'm not a farmer. I don't know a whole lot about plants, but I do know that if there's a branch and you cut it off, it's not going to live in and of itself. God wants us to live in him and be a part of the process of growing. But we struggle with process. I mean, intellectually, we know, okay, some things are going to take time, and I understand that. I can go through process. Until we get a point in our lives where we find ourselves emotionally needy or dissatisfied with what's going on, we just don't have exactly what we want in our lives. So I don't want process then. I want what I want now. I don't want to wait for it to grow, or I don't want to wait for it to be developed in my life. I want my hunger met now, not later. Maybe life just hasn't uh, worked out the way that you had hoped. Some of you may find that some of your dreams that you've been thinking about for years just are not coming true. And you're not sure that they're ever going to come through. And you find yourself with this hunger, with this dissatisfaction. We all are going to face this at times. As a matter of fact, if somebody suggests to you that they don't ever feel hungry or that they don't ever feel empty, then they're just a liar. Um, Or at best, they're just deluded. And they have just learned a little mantra of how to say all these nice things all the time. All of us are going to experience this. We don't like this emptiness, though. When we are in pain, we want to resolve it. But I want to suggest this morning, it is actually a gift. That this emptiness, this hunger, is actually a gift. Because without it, we stop seeking him. We stop depending on him. We so easily become self-sufficient. I believe there's something about the seeking Uh, just in and of itself. We all know the scripture, Matthew 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Most of us think about, okay, knocking on the door. Okay, what's on the other side? I knock on the door and then he opens and then I get, I get the prize. I get the, I get it all, all fixed now and it's all satisfied. What if it's really about the seeking? What if life, the cooperating with the Spirit and the ultimate place of peace in life is really about us seeking and being in a constant place of seeking and cooperating with the Spirit. Matthew 6, 25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? 
Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So hunger is a good thing. Because it keeps us seeking him. Now, the challenge with hunger is it's always, it, it also is the sales pitch that the enemy uses against us. So, you're hungry. So, you're dissatisfied. And you've been following this Christ for years and you're still dissatisfied. You still find yourself confused and not sure exactly how this is going to go. Well, you know, he's not enough. You know, this is just a story. This is just kind of one of the stories of many stories that's in our culture. It's not really real. Because you know if you need something or want something, you've got to go get it. You've got to go after it and get it yourself. We all know people that have been in faith. They were raised in the church, and, and we've seen them kind of disconnect. And we hear oftentimes, you know, I tried that, but it just, it just wasn't all fulfilling. It's just not my thing, which suggests that, it's all about being fulfilled, that that's the most important thing in life is that we are always fulfilled. When you're hungry, it's not that Christ is not enough. It's that you don't have enough of Christ. And even if you have all of Christ that you know how to have right now, there is still more to be had. There's still more to understand. There's more is necessary to be able to cooperate with the Spirit so that our lives are changed. But when you're hungry, it's the sales pitch of the enemy that comes against you and says, ah, I've got a way to satisfy you. You're not happy in your marriage. You know, you you probably picked the wrong one. You know, this is never going to work. You're never going to be fulfilled in this marriage. You, you should have, you know, you remember the girl in college? You remember that guy in high school? As a matter of fact, you could check in on him right now. Within a couple of seconds, Facebook him. Find out, just, just wonder, what it, wonder what they're going through. You probably would have been more fulfilled with them anyway. Did you know our marriage is not even supposed to totally fulfill us? That's God's role. Our marriage is not supposed to be the thing that makes us completely happy. If we look at it in that way, we're turning it into an idol. And that's not what it's supposed to be. Now, Brent and I spend our whole lives making marriages happier. We work with people to help them feel more satisfied in their relationship. But it can never be totally what you want it to be. It can never be totally perfect. 
there will always be some little level of dissatisfaction. And there will always be times in our marriages, in the best of marriages, that we go through and we go, huh, my needs aren't really being met in this area. I'm not very happy about that. Or I just don't feel that spark anymore. I just don't have that chemistry that we used to have in the old days. We find ourselves looking around and going, oh, I really want something a little bit different. And what we hear every day, you know, I love him, but I just don't feel in love with him anymore. If we don't make a commitment to say, I am in this for the long haul, I am doing this, and I am putting my energy into this, even on the days when it doesn't feel so great, then we set ourselves up for the enemy coming in and whispering those things to us. Boy, you got to do something about this. This just isn't right for you to not feel fulfilled, to not have all your needs met. You need to make some changes now before it's too late. You're not getting any younger. You need to move on from this. And he whispers the lies to us that can get us horribly off track, ruining our lives, going in the wrong direction. Or maybe in your life it's something different. Maybe you have a commitment that you're going to pay off those student loans that you have. Doggone it, I'm going to work and I'm going to get this taken care of so I don't have this burden on me anymore. And all of a sudden you hear this, you know, you really drive a crummy car for the kind of job that you have. People around you probably think that you're kind of a loser because your car's not that great. You deserve something better than this. I mean, yeah, you should pay off those debts, but you deserve something better than this. What do people think anyway when they see you in that? And you know, for zero down and very little a month, (laughs) you could have that car that you deserve. Or maybe as Brent says, it's the whispers of, you know, this thing with God, you've been reading your Bible consistently, and it's just dead. You're just not getting anything out of the whole last couple weeks you've been reading, and it just feels dry and dead. Or maybe you pray, and your prayers just feel like they're hitting the ceiling. It feels like, am I really praying to anybody? Maybe you should seek something else. Maybe there's another religious perspective. Maybe there's some other thing that you should look into. And all those little whispers come in to distract us, to destroy us, and to move us off from the very thing that God has for our lives. So the misstep is that we feel the hunger, we feel the dissatisfaction, and instead of going immediately to Christ and saying, help, which is what our response needs to be, help, I feel hungry, I feel something here, help. Instead of that, we have a tendency to pull back and think about how do I fix this myself? How do I find satisfaction myself? So that first encounter with that, that person at the business conference, just sitting innocently, having a conversation with somebody of the opposite sex, and all of a sudden that conversation starts connecting with you in a way, and it's like, it just feels like oxygen. I just, wow, they're really interested in me and and something starts happening our for our first reaction should be to run for the hills and say help christ and go back to the room and call our best friend and say i need I, boy i had a conversation today and it touched something in me will you pray for me right now i need to i need i need something from god right now instead of doing that once again we kind of pull back and think 
felt amazing. I wonder when I can have my next conversation. I wonder where this is going to lead. And we step into something that ultimately will destroy. I think the problem is we consider hunger or dissatisfaction as a tragedy. And we must remedy that. I am not satisfied, so I've got to do something about that. I talk to my clients about we awfulize things. It would be awful if that happened. It would be awful if I go to that party and my ex-boyfriend's there. It would be awful if my child doesn't pass third grade. It would be awful if I don't get that job that I'm applying for. It would be really awful if my in-laws moved to town. (laughs) We see things as tragedies and awful. You know, those things are uncomfortable. Those things are painful. And they can be very difficult. But awful? Really? There's some awful things that happen in our world. But many of the things that happen in our lives are just uncomfortable or painful. And we don't really want to experience discomfort. Um, Over the last few months, I've had a few um, health challenges. And I found out that I can't eat some of the things that I normally eat. And they're things that I like. And they're things that I really do think I need, maybe. But I had to give them up. And, And you know what? I survived. I lived through not being able to eat some of those things that I like to eat. And after the first few days, I found out it wasn't awful. I really was okay. Even though those chocolate Easter eggs that are still on my kitchen counter were calling my name from a distance, I'm still here. I'm going to go bad if you don't eat me quick. Does your candy talk to you? Anyway, I need to just throw it away. But I found out it was okay to live without those. You can exist without chocolate Easter eggs. And what I found was I would rather do without them than to feel as horrible as I would feel if I ate them. And it made me think about that's how sin is in our lives. It may be great at the moment, but I don't want the long-term consequences. I don't like the result of falling into that particular sin. But we think dissatisfaction is awful. And we try to handle it on our own. Okay, this is terrible. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it better. But we were never created to live on our own. If I can go to another plant analogy, there are certain kinds of plants that they actually send out runners or they send out low-lying uh, branches to them. We actually had a forsythia bu- easy for me to say, a forsythia bush do this in our yard. And it sent out a low-level branch, and the branch actually rooted in the ground. And it gets its roots deeper and deeper, and then eventually you can cut that branch, and you have two separate plants. It's actually created its own plant. Well, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that could be a good analogy for something like doing a church plant, You know, we're doing a church plant, we give it the energy that it needs, it roots on its own, and then it's able to become its own plant. Or even thought about your children as they become adults. You give them what they need, and they're able to root on their own, and they're able to live on their own. But that is never to be an analogy for us in our relationship with Christ. We are not created to be our own plant and to get our energy and our sustenance somewhere else. 
We are created to be branches. We are created to always be connected to him and always be getting our nourishment and our sustenance from him, not from anywhere else. And I believe that's because our purpose in life is to bear fruit. We stay connected with him so that we can have fruit produced in our lives that can go on and change other people's lives by what's produced. John 15, 4 says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The scripture talks about um, kind of the fruit that our life will display if we cooperate in the Spirit. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It talks about love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, um, gentleness, and self-control. And um, the, uh, you know, those all are wonderful things. We all would like those things. They would they would, they would not only feel like they would fulfill us, but they would be good um, displays to others. But so oftentimes we try to put those on. We, we gosh, I want to I wanna look like I have joy, and so I, I know how to act like I'm full of joy, and so um, I try to present joy. But these are fruit. These are the byproduct of a life that cooperates with the Spirit. Uh, we're not comfortable saying, you know, I... I'm struggling with self-control, or I'm struggling with this or with that. God, help me. So that by, by you um, filling me up and connecting with me, then eventually I will display those things. We want to be full-formed fruit. We want to look good. We want to have fruit that just looks wonderful. We're not real satisfied with being kind of small little green apples that aren't quite fully developed. Uh, we're not comfortable with that. We want to be the, the, the fullness of that. Instead of being able to be honest and trust him to do the work in us. I really think that most of us would rather look good than produce fruit. But if you're going to bear good fruit, things have to be cut off in your life. You know, there's times that we have to have things taken out of our lives. And some of them are really good things. And some of them are things that we like. But if we put our energy into those, we can't have energy to really bear fruit and to do some of the things that God called us to do. But it's hard because I want that. And it's easy to have that, but I really deserve that. But those are things that hinder us from growing in the way that we're supposed to grow. God has called us to produce fruit. You can have a whole vineyard with beautiful vines, with wonderful leaves on them. But if they're not producing fruit, that whole vineyard is worthless. God wants fruit in our lives. And when we have that, I believe that's what God wants to do to bring healing and health and nourishment to the world. Our fruit, him working through us, helps bring his kingdom to the world. It helps bring healing to those around us. And the really neat thing about fruit is not only does it nourish, but it has seeds in it. And so in the process, those seeds are actually creating new life. We are planting seeds that bring people to faith, that bring them to know God because the fruit that's there in our lives.
Now, at the risk uh, of stepping on toes further, though, you know, I'm really talking to myself more than anybody. Um, You know, sometimes I find that I'm seeking fruit in my life, but even then I'm seeking fruit to look good. I want self-control. God, give me self-control. So instead of staying in bed until the last possible minute before I have to get up, but I actually get up and I go to the gym, because then I'll look really good. And people go, oh my gosh, you're so self-disciplined. How do you do that so often? How about self-control so that I fast and press in in prayer over a certain matter? How about self-control so that I really spend more time digging into the word because I need that connection even more with Christ? Or how about self-control so I don't go with the six things that Banana Republic told me I really have to have for summer? And... And instead, I put that money into helping someone that's starving or provide water for someone that doesn't have clean water. I find myself wanting patience so that I look really saintly in front of the people that I work with. And they go, oh, she's so awesome. She's such a nice person. But maybe God is working patience in my life because there's something that he wants to do. And I have to wait on his timing. And I don't want to wait. But he wants to build that patience in me so that I'm waiting on his timing. So I'm doing the thing that he has called me to do. God wants us to be satisfied. It's not like he wants us to live this life as dissatisfaction. But true satisfaction comes in being who we were made to be. And we were made to be branches connected to him, producing fruit to give to the world, to watch his kingdom come. So four simple thoughts as we go today, I want you to um, remind yourself of that will help you in our tendency towards self-dependency. The first one is that the sales pitch is a lie. Counterfeits will never satisfy. They will always look good on the surface. They will always draw us, but they will never um, fully satisfy. If you're in a desert and you're hungry and thirsty and you come over a ridge and you see the ocean, our initial thought is, My thirst is now satisfied forever. But the moment you drink that water, the moment you drink salt water, it just makes you thirstier. The minute you you move towards a counterfeit, it will just make you thirstier. Well, you have to have more of the counterfeit and more of the counterfeit and more of the counterfeit. It will never be a pure glass of water that truly quenches your soul. The second one is the thought that you have a right to be fulfilled is a lie. In the last 24 hours, approximately 30,000 children died of starvation. A third of the world lives from day to day, not sure where their next meal is coming from. And I stress out about whether I'm fulfilled or I'm content with my life. The third one is Christ is enough whether you feel like it or not. Um, we have to know how to go to him when we don't feel like it. Remember, the hunger... The, the emptiness can be a gift. And if we can lean into him, and sometimes we don't even know what it is. We, don't, we aren't even clearly, accurately able to identify what that is. And that's where we need to learn how to pray. I think David was so good at this. He was called a man after God's own heart. He made some major missteps. But he always went back um, to, to his source. I think the prayer in Psalm 139, Search me, O God. And know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. See if there's 
brokenness. What is it? Identify the hunger. Show it to me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Do we trust him enough to invite him in to say, reveal me to myself? And then the fourth one is, trust God in the process. Trust him in what you're going through. We all want immediate transformation. Okay, I really want this fixed right now. Please, God. But many things take process, and we have to be careful that we don't give up on that and go, okay, I'm going to do it on my own then. Exodus 23, 27 is where God is giving the children of Israel their promised land. And he says to them, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. There are things in our lives that God in his mercy does not take instantaneously because we have to grow enough to be able to receive them. He tells the children of Israel, little by little I'll do this until you've grown enough to take possession of the land. If God gave us some of the things we want right now, we couldn't handle it. So in his mercy, he gives it to us in the right timing, in the right way. Trust him in that, even if you don't see it. God knows what he's doing in your life, and he always has perfect timing in your life. Whether we see it, whether we know it or not, God knows what he's doing. The most important thing that we can possibly do in cooperating with the Spirit is just owning our stuff, is just breaking through our own denial and owning our stuff. But instead of sending you home with an action step today, I'm going to ask you just to do, that. we'll do this together. I'm going to ask you just for a couple of moments, if you'll close your eyes, if you'll set your phone down, put your iPad down, set your notes, notes aside, and just quiet yourself and center yourself. How are you hungry? Where are you dissatisfied? Some of you may go, I don't know where I'm hungry. I think you do. I think if you be honest with yourself, you'll know where you're hungry because it keeps coming back. Are you disappointed? Just really disappointed in the way something's turned out. Are you hurt? It's all you can think about is just the hurt. It's just, it, it just an ache in you. Do you feel disrespected? Are you anxious about the future, something you just, it's just in the pit of your stomach, you're worried about what's going to take place? Or are you depressed about something that has taken place, that, that went south, and you're discouraged over it? Are you desperate for a relationship? Are you dissatisfied at work? Maybe you're just lonely. Where's the hunger? And then however you would do this, just on your own, ask the Holy Spirit right now, Lord, Show me what I do with my hunger. What's my behavior? All sin is motivated by a hungry heart. We choose badly. We feel unfulfilled. Uh, we feel hungry, and we choose badly. We choose a counterfeit. So what is yours? And maybe more than one. Do you just disconnect and watch more TV than you should just to not think about it? Do you 
Maybe you work too much. Is it overuse of alcohol? You just like kind of that numb feeling to just not have to think about it. Maybe there's an inappropriate relationship that you've connected with that you know is wrong, but there's something in it that feels like oxygen. Is it voyeurism on the computer? Maybe it's too much spending. Maybe it's too much eating. Maybe you desperately need others to treat you a certain way so through intimidation and anger you control them to make sure that they always treat you right. And once you have a sense of that, the first step we take is we simply confess it. So without even doing it out loud, just on your own right now, just say, God, I confess this. I confess and recognize this is my hunger and this is what I know I do. I confess it and I repent now. I'm changing my mind. I'm committing to turning a corner here. None of this is so that we can be perfect people. None of this is so that we can somehow earn a place in God and make him happy with us. He loves you deeply. He wants you to have your, your thirst quenched by him to drink full, fresh water. So as you just simply say, help God, as we move forward now into this next week, I want you to think about, first of all, every single day, I want you just to stop for the next several weeks and just stop and take a moment and say, God, this... I own this. This is, this is what I do. Help. Help. Just take a minute and do that each day. Some of you then need to take the next step, and you need to find a trusted friend. And you need to say, I need to confess this to you. I know this is me. I know this is what I struggle with. This is my hunger, and this is what I do. Scripture says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Some of you need to talk to that friend. And then I encourage you to find a portion of Scripture that you might be able to go to. And then some of you don't know how to do this. There's people here that can help you with this. Find a portion of Scripture that you can read over every day um, that you feel like relates to your hunger. And then some of you feel isolated. You were not designed to do this on your own. Some of you need to jump into one of the house churches and begin to take the risk of community. And have other people gather around you. So let's take those steps this next week. Let's let our hunger and our pain move us to Christ. Why don't you stand to your feet? In just a few moments, I'm going to ask Pastor Ed to come and lead us in communion. But I would like to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Thomas Merton prayed this many years ago as a theologian and writer. Let's just open our hearts to him. Let's pray this together. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. 
Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never lead me to face my perils alone. Just a moment as we come to communion, there's so many different reasons that we do this, but two of those today are, first of all, every time we come to the table, we say, I need you. I cannot do this myself. I own that. I own my own need to be in control of my life, but I release that into your hands. And we also come to the table because we believe that somehow mysteriously that when we are taking in these physical elements, that we are taking in more of Christ. We are saying, I need more of you, and I now receive more of you. If our team would come and prepare.